This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. We are here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance and the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the whole wide world in his hands. Yeah, that's probably how Jeff Bezos of Amazon feels right now. Out with his latest annual letter to shareholders, the e-commerce giant CEO revealing a closely held secret. Uh, let's bring in Spencer Soper, technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News from our bureau in Seattle, along with Jachandra Worrell. He's global internet and consumer electronics analyst at Bloomberg Intelligence, our in-house group of analysts. Uh, Jachandra joining us from our Bloomberg 960 studio in San Francisco. Spencer, let's go to you. These letters... Uh, from Jeff Bezos, come out once a year. He's been doing it for a while, right? And they are closely watched. Yeah, definitely. And and uh, and this year, he he gave us something. You know, a big big reveal on their on their number of uh, Prime subscribers. This is a very key thing of Amazon's success. You know, a lot of people pay ninety nine dollars a year uh, for their free two day delivery and. Uh, video streaming and music streaming. Uh, some people even pay monthly now. But that's really been a key. Um, point of customer loyalty for them. People pay that fee and then are inclined to shop more with Amazon because they want to get their money's worth for the shipping that they've kind of paid in advance for. And uh, it's been this kind of flywheel wheel effect. So his big, that's a number they've kept secret for a very long time, but they revealed that it's more than $100 million, And uh, that was the big takeaway from this year's letter. You know, my assumption was that most of those folks are in the U.S. Do they give us any sort of breakdown on how much of that expansion is overseas? Or is that hundred million primarily domestic? They're, they they skew uh, U.S. centric, but that was definitely something uh, a big takeaway here for analysts, and that Bezos was trying to project is is uh, listen, give us time, we will replicate the success we've had with Amazon Prime in the U.S. We will replicate that in other markets around the world, and so that that one hundred million number um, is is addressing like yes, they could be hitting a saturation point in the U.S., but that the Prime value proposition is is gaining traction in other markets like Europe, like Asia, uh, and, and, you know, some of their more recent entries like like Australia and Brazil. Let's point out Amazon shares are up 1.6%, up more than 24 bu- bucks, excuse me, at $1,552.54 a share in today's session. Jachendra, come on in on this. Uh, out there in our 960 studio in San Francisco, you sent us some great research that you've uh, put together uh, over at Bloomberg Intelligence. You remind us that Amazon, at least based on your research, is on track to surpass a trillion dollars in gross sales by 2025. That's pretty staggering. Yeah, and that's uh, conservative. Uh, so, ba- so basically, you know, if you look at that hundred million number, actually in December we uh, forecasted, you know, this year they will cross uh, that number. So when it came out, I was uh, not surprised with the number as much as I was with the uh, timing, you know, uh, because like Spencer said, it was a very closely held number. Now, what that what does this mean for them is essentially it gives them more leverage to attract more brands to the platform to attract more third-party sellers, uh, video content, you know, so it, it has actually a ripple effect, uh, that disclosure in general. And if you look at the headroom for growth for uh, that 100 million number, I mean, digital buyers globally is over a billion people. So they have a lot of headroom for growth, and, and we think that they can double this number in the next five years. 
So here's a question I have for, for each of you. I was kind of astonished at finding out how low that median worker is. The lowest paid person at Facebook is an accountant at $45,000, and, and the median pay is considerably higher. Same true for Google and Apple. $28,000 is the median pay at Amazon? That sounds like a lot of low-paid warehouse workers. And, Spencer, that's what it is, right? Yeah, that's precisely what it is. Um, Amazon is, is a little bit of an outlier when you think about tech companies and the fact that most of its workforce is blue-collar. You know, pe the people that are in these warehouses scattered around not just the U.S. but around the globe who, when you, when you, when you add things to your cart and push the buy button, there's a lot of people who have to wander around these warehouses and actually fetch those items, pack them in boxes, get them out the door. Uh, some Amazon employees actually doing deliveries now. So yes, you definitely have very deep, deep uh, blue collar ranks within Amazon, which makes them an outlier from other companies like Google and Facebook. And a lot of robots helping out, and more robots coming to an Amazon warehouse near you. Jitendra, what I'm curious about is the retail space. Yep, it's a lot of stuff that they're selling, and they're selling, I'm expected to sell a lot more, but it's still kind of a low margin business. Is the Amazon profitability story, the more interesting story, what it does with Amazon Web Services going forward? Yeah, so AWS will continue to be uh, the bigger driver of profits here, but what they have shown in the U.S. that once they scale Prime and their dependence of fulfillment by Amazon uh, service that they have uh, among the third-party sellers, they can churn out profits. So what they're doing is like they're looking for offsets, right? Like you, like you mm -hmm. said, retail is a low-margin business, but the offsets for Amazon is going to be advertising. That's going to be a big one. Uh, this year, they expect it to clock over $3 billion, and it's a high-margin business, and uh, you know, we believe that uh, they are going to uh, step that uh, up aggressively in the coming years uh, because it's not a want as much as it's a need to, to offset. So that's one big uh, thing. Then the second one is the FBA program that I talked about. Because Amazon, what Amazon's doing is like becoming this landlord who wants to rent out all the logistics network to all the third party sellers. And essentially whenever you get free home delivery, that delivery is paid for uh, from the fulfillment by Amazon uh, sellers essentially, because they collect a fee from them. So this model, they have shown in the US it works. In, in uh, Globally, obviously they're making losses, but uh, outside the U.S. they're making losses, but they they will so once they scale the business, uh, then then it'll be uh, it'll be similar to what they did in the U.S. So we think like longer term, you know, Amazon can have around 15% uh, EBITDA margin. So Spencer, in the last 30 seconds or so, we have that original shareholder letter by Bezos said we don't plan on being profitable, and we're just going to take market share from everyone. Are they still being true to that? And Spencer, more like 15. Yes, they still go to very narrow margins. Every penny they bring in, they try to pump into tomorrow's wow, which he referenced in his letter. So yes, continue to see, expect to continue them to continue to invest. We could do hours on Amazon. We'll get back to you guys soon. Jitendra Worrell at Bloomberg Intelligence and Spencer Soper, our technology and e-commerce reporter at Bloomberg News. Check them both out at Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Radio. You don't want me anymore. Let me explain.
Well done to our team here, Paul Brennan. Thank you so much, our producer. Because it looks like uh, Allergan says, and I want you anymore so much, Shire. Let's talk about what's going on in the drug sector. Max Neeson follows it for us. He's biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section here at Bloomberg News. And he's back uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. So this headline just crossed the Bloomberg about Allergan saying it does not intend to make an offer for Shire. So get us up to speed about the news this morning, kind of where we are. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the news broke this morning confirming that Takeda, uh, the Japanese pharmaceutical company, had made a bid um, worth a, in the range of $61 billion. Huge. Huge, enormous. Yeah, it's a it's a pretty substantial premium. Um, and that Chired rejected the bill uh, or the deal. Probably less to do with the price and more to do with the, the cash stock split. Um, it's pretty heavily weighted towards Takeda stock. Um, and then a couple hours later, got the news that, that Allergan was also in, in early talks, uh, which appeared to at least have broken down or taken a different tone uh, this afternoon. And we've seen a couple of fairly substantial deals in the healthcare and, and biotech segment. What does this tell us about the sector and what does this tell us about supposedly pricey uh, valuations? Um, you know, I think that this particular deal is more kind of opportunistic, mm-hmm. uh, kind of reflects the fact that the chair has gotten pretty cheap over the course of the past year, uh, particularly in the beginning of this year, mostly because of some perceived threat to its hemophilia business, uh, which is which is tricky for it. Uh, it's a competitive Roche drug that, that was recently approved. Um, as for the sector more broadly, I mean, Biopharma, there's kind of always going to be sort of an endless appetite for deals. Um, you know, drugs expire, they go off patent, they get more competitive. Um, scientific breakthroughs render previously profitable drugs sort of irrelevant. So it's always going to keep going. And, and also, relative to other industries of its size, it's less consolidated, um, more companies doing different things. So, um, you know, always going to be appetite for, for deals and even big deals. We always see deals, I feel like, in the pharmaceutical, right? We go through these phases. Man, Pfizer, that's like, I feel like, the story of that company big time. But a lot of them. So what what are the significant trends, man? Because uh, Ben, because uh, Max, rather, where did I get Ben? from. I don't know where. Max, because we've also seen drug companies kind of getting rid of businesses that just don't make sense and kind of, uh, you know, focusing on a vertical, if you will. So that, that's definitely been a trend. Um, I, you know, most recently had uh, Novartis selling off its consumer mm-hmm. business. And that's just one of kind of a long streak of those deals. It's usually in pursuit of just greater focus and margin. And the fact that, you know, it's not an easy pharmaceutical business is hard. You have a a, you know, something like an 80, 90% failure rate for, for early stage research. So you kind of constantly have to be replenishing the pipeline and um, and spending, you know, a whole lot of money to try and develop drug candidates. So so let's easy. look at that early stage research. There, there are all sorts of things taking place in genomics, and we've seen a huge run of these startups and small, uh, very new, um, nimble, uh, smaller companies how significant is that to this wave of biotech mergers? Can the the big companies still do basic research? 
Um, they, they definitely can. And, you know, this is kind of the way the industry's always been structured. Um, you have smaller companies doing kind of that initial riskier research and then larger ones jumping in later to actually, you know, financing a large scale trial to actually confirm a breakthrough is incredibly expensive. And then the whole regulatory maze at the FDA. Um, so that's always kind of been how it's worked. And, and it's definitely relevant to this one. Uh, the reason Shire is so cheap is I mentioned hemophilia. Um, they sell kind of the older school treatments you know, prophylactic and uh, kind of stopping serious events, like if someone's bleeding, because mm-hmm. um, hemophilia is a blood clotting disorder. Because people are really interested in things like orphan drugs, which yeah. at first I couldn't get my head around because it's such a small population, but those drugs are so expensive. Exactly. And and hemophilia um, is one of the most profitable of those markets. You know, it's a small population, but people take drugs for a lifetime. But the threat um, is that, is, as you mentioned, gene therapy, uh, these potential for kind of gene editing, potentially curative. Mm-hmm. Uh, drugs. So if you get a potential cure for hemophilia, you don't need to take right. you know, the clotting factors they've anymore. All, they've all got to be watching. 30 seconds here. Allergan saying, okay, I'm not interested in Shire. Is that just a play? Could they come back? What do you think? Or probably um, not. I, it seems like a, a straight transaction is, is probably unlikely. They might try to do something more creative, um, some kind of combination with some spinoffs, uh, something a little bit more involved. You know, I wouldn't put anything past Brent Saunders, who's uh, been very aggressive through this whole thing. And the Takeda deal is not done, right? Because they're they're saying, eh, we'd like a little bit more. Um, Max, thank you so much. Max Neeson, biotech, pharma, and healthcare columnist at Bloomberg Gadfly, our fast commentary section in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. Check him out on Twitter at Max Neeson. Tell you a story and it starts with time. What about bringing in our next guest? Michael Luden is the director of product at IBM Watson Developer Labs, and he's going to discuss with us the future of immersive storytelling, a little bit of uh, VR and augmented reality. Michael, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, so tell us, how is technology going to help filmmakers tell immersive stories? Wow. Well, um, let me count the ways. Uh, well, obviously, we see uh, already a lot of experiments with uh, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, we, I think, at IBM have uh, shown off a trailer um, that, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was for uh, Deus Ex Machina that was cut together by Watson using a machine learning algorithm. Um, those are sort of more playful experimentations, but um, I think that, of course, you know, we've, we've already seen a lot of... Uh, you know, marketing stunts around uh, virtual and augmented reality for uh, upcoming entertainment properties. There's been a lot of uh, there. I think there are upwards of four different uh, VR experiences for Ready Player One, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that it's already kind of revolutionized the uh, the pipeline of how you do things like um, computer graphics and how you do motion capture, et cetera. So. It's all happening. <laughs> hey, Michael Ludden, I have to tell you, I Googled Michael Ludden on Google uh, earlier. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. And, no, no, no. Everything good. Everything good. Not to worry. But you have a really interesting <laughs> background and impressive, right? You were at Google. You were at Samsung HTC. Uh, now you're director of product at IBM Watson Developer Labs doing AR, VR. I am curious, first of all, tell me a little bit about this group at IBM, what kind of work you're doing. Okay. Well, thank you. Um so Watson Developer Labs is, is my team. It's a team of product managers. And essentially, our mission is to build products for developers that solve use case-based problems they face with IBM technology. A subset of that is our ARVR Labs initiative, which is to do that exact same thing for uh, immersive technology specifically. 
one product that kind of highlights this is the VR Speech Sandbox, which is a toolkit for developers that Unity developers, uh, which is a development environment, uh, can download in order to add an interactive speech system to any virtual or augmented uh, reality application. So you can maybe talk to uh, other people in the experience or control it with your voice, et cetera. So based on kind of the work you guys are doing, you're going to be at this this panel at the Tribeca Film Festival. It kicked off last night, uh, and they do all these things, of course, feature films, documentaries, and they do these talks like the one that you're going to be involved in. So do you have a lot of content producers, movie studios, uh, and the like, kind of reaching out to you guys to figure out how to incorporate technology into all of that content that we also want to watch? Certainly. There's a lot of interest and excitement around uh, so many of these new uh, capabilities that we have, and they're all kind of converging at the same time, whether you're talking about advanced artificial intelligence or really usable and interesting and immersive virtual reality where you have six degrees of freedom. So I think that there's a lot of excitement, and we have a lot of companies that become aware uh, of what we're doing in the space, What's want to the, come to us to understand how they can, yeah. What is six degrees of freedom? Six degrees of freedom. Uh, so if you can think of like a mobile Google Cardboard, that would be three degrees of freedom, meaning you can turn your head left to right, up to down, and you can tilt it. But six degrees of freedom means you could walk forward, you could walk backwards, you could uh, crouch, you could get up. And it's sort of one-to-one movement tracking. So you really feel like you're inhabiting the virtual scene. That's cool. So, so let me be yeah. crude and bring this down to <laughs> money. It, the technology sounds fascinating, the experience as a film fan sounds wonderful. How is IBM going to monetize this? This sounds like really an amazing set of tech. Who purchases this? Do they do they buy hardware? Do they buy software? What are you guys selling? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. So basically, we are uh, selling our platform as a service to developers who can make use of it uh, in order to build new and advanced functionality based on our artificial intelligence technology, for example, um, so we kind of sell to the developer and to the business who can then build the content. Um, and I think, you know, you see a lot of the, the movie studios investing heavily in some of these VR experiences, et cetera. So in other words, they're not going to have to buy a whole bunch of hardware and software. They just graft right onto your platform and they're ready to begin developing and, and building. Yeah. So they can begin developing and building right away. Of course, you know, if you want to prototype, you probably want to have your target hardware. So if you're doing that for VR, you probably do want to have that VR headset in-house just so you can play around with it. And you know what's interesting, too? There's an interactive AR documentary. It's going to have its world premiere uh, in the Tribeca Immersive Program. I mean, do we have the setups already for you know, customers to kind of come out and see all this stuff? Um, it's getting there, right? I think form factor has been one of the limiting uh, things about both augmented and virtual reality. I think um, the headsets on both sides are going to be starting to converge in, term in terms of functionality as we get more all-in-one solutions for VR, as the AR goggles like, like uh, Magic Leap, et cetera, get released to the world and are a little more polished. Um, and of course, as the content gets there. So I think that um, certainly it's getting there. I think this is going to be a big year. Um, where you're going to see certainly a lot more stuff with AR before the year's done, uh, given what Apple and Google are doing on both of their platforms and kind of where everybody's flocking. So the chicken and egg problem sounds like it's being solved. The, once the content is there, the um, VR headsets are going to become more available, better, less expensive, because it's been a very halting 
set of development. Every time yeah. it looks like yeah. this is the VR set. It kind of remember Oculus was going to yeah. be the next giant thing, and uh, none of this right. has caught fire yet. But it's out That's there. That's right. It's been sort of a slow and steady climb, and I know a lot of people went through in 2016 this really high high, and then in 2017 this really low low, thinking that all of their investments were a bust. And I think you know where people erred was simply the time horizon. 2016 saw the first three major consumer VR headsets in the Oculus Rift, which you just mentioned, the mm -hmm. HTC Vive and the PlayStation VR. And frankly, they sold millions of, of units in that year alone. And and it, it and that those sales uh, accelerated in 2017. So the way I viewed it is this has been a st slow and steady climb. And of course, um, I would argue that the utilitarian content right. needs to be there before it really reaches the mainstream. Michael Ludden, thank you so much. Director of Product at IBM Watson Developer Labs, joining us on this Thursday on the phone in San Francisco, part of the Tribeca Film Festival, which kicked off last night. Cool talks that they're having as well. This is Bloomberg Radio. Tell you a story and it starts with time. And about bringing in our next guest, Michael Luden is the director of product at IBM Watson Developer Labs, and he's going to discuss with us the future of immersive storytelling, a little bit of uh, VR and augmented reality. Michael, welcome to Bloomberg Radio. Well, thank you very much for having me. So, so tell us, how is technology going to help filmmakers tell immersive stories? Wow. Well, um, let me count the ways. Uh, <laughs> well, obviously, we see uh, already a lot of experiments with uh, artificial intelligence. Um, you know, we, I think, at IBM have uh, shown off a trailer um, that, I, if I'm not mistaken, I think it was for uh, Deus Ex Machina that was cut together by Watson using a machine learning algorithm. Um, those are sort of more playful experimentations, but um, I think that, of course, you know, we've, we've already seen a lot of, uh, you know, marketing stunts around uh, virtual and augmented reality for uh, upcoming entertainment properties. There's been a lot of uh, there. I think there are upwards of four different uh, VR experiences for Ready Player One, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that it's already kind of revolutionized the, uh, the pipeline of how you do things like um, computer graphics and how you do motion capture, et cetera. So. It's all happening. <laughs> hey, Michael Ludden, I have to tell you, I Googled Michael Ludden on Google uh, earlier. Uh -oh. Uh -oh. <laughs> no, 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 everything good, everything good, not to worry. But you have a really interesting <laughs> background and impressive, right? You were at Google, you were at Samsung, HTC. Uh, now you're director of product at IBM Watson Developer Labs, doing AR, VR. I am curious, first of all, tell me a little bit about this group at IBM, what kind of work you're doing. Okay, well, thank you. Um, so Watson Developer Labs is, is my team. It's a team of product managers. And essentially, our mission is to build products for developers that solve use case-based problems they face with IBM technology. A subset of that is our ARVR Labs initiative, which is to do that exact same thing for uh, immersive technology specifically. One product that kind of highlights this is the VR Speech Sandbox, which is a toolkit for developers that Unity developers, uh, which is a development environment, uh, can download in order to add an interactive speech system to any virtual or augmented uh, reality application. So you can maybe talk to 
uh, other people in the experience or control it with your voice, et cetera. So based on kind of the work you guys are doing, and you're going to be at this this panel at the Tribeca Film Festival. It kicked off last night, uh, and they do all these things, of course, feature films, documentaries, and they do these talks like the one that you're going to be involved in. So do you have a lot of content producers, movie studios, uh, and the like, kind of reaching out to you guys to figure out how to incorporate technology into all that content that we all so want to watch? Certainly. There's a lot of interest and excitement around uh, so many of these new uh, capabilities that we have, and they're all kind of converging at the same time, whether you're talking about advanced artificial intelligence or really usable and interesting and immersive virtual reality where you have six degrees of freedom. So I think that there's a lot of excitement, and we have a lot of companies that become aware uh, of what we're doing in this space want to come to us to understand how they can, yeah. What is six degrees of freedom? Six degrees of freedom. Uh, so if you can think of like a mobile Google Cardboard, that would be three degrees of freedom, meaning you can turn your head left to right, up to down, and you can tilt it. But six degrees of freedom means you could walk forward, you could walk backwards, you could uh, crouch, you could get up. And it's sort of one-to-one movement tracking. So you really feel like you're inhabiting the virtual scene. That's cool. So, so let me be yeah. crude and bring this down to money. <laughs> it, the technology sounds fascinating, the experience as a film fan sounds wonderful. How is IBM going to monetize this? This sounds like really an amazing set of tech. Who purchases this? Do they do they buy hardware? Do they buy software? What are you guys selling? Well, I'm glad you asked. Yeah. So basically, we are uh, selling our platform as a service to developers who can make use of it. Uh, in order to build new and advanced functionality based on our artificial intelligence technology, for example. Um, So we kind of sell to the developer and to the business who can then build the content. Um, And I think, you know, you see a lot of the the movie studios investing heavily in some of these VR experiences, et cetera. So in other words, they're not going to have to buy a whole bunch of hardware and software. They just graft right onto your platform and they're ready to begin developing and, and building. Yeah, so they can begin developing and building right away. Of course, you know, if you want to prototype, you probably want to have your target hardware. So if you're doing that for VR, you probably do want to have that VR headset in-house just so you can play around with it. And you know what's interesting, too? There's an interactive AR documentary. It's going to have its world premiere uh, in the Tribeca Immersive Program. I mean, do we have the setups already for you know, customers to kind of come out and see all this stuff? Um, It's getting there, right? I think form factor has been one of the limiting uh, things about both augmented and virtual reality. I think um, the headsets on both sides are going to be starting to converge in in terms of functionality as we get more all-in-one solutions for VR, as the AR goggles like like, uh, Magic Leap, et cetera, get released to the world and are a little more polished. Um, And of course, as the content gets there. So I think that um, certainly it's getting there. I think this is going to be a big year. Um, where you're going to see certainly a lot more stuff with AR before the year's done, uh, given what Apple and Google are doing on both of their platforms and kind of where everybody's flocking. So the chicken and egg problem sounds like it's being solved. The, once the content is there, the um, VR headsets are going to become more available, better, less expensive, because it's been a very halting set of development every time yeah. it looks like yeah. this is the VR set it kind of remember Oculus was going to yeah. be the next giant thing and uh, none of this right. has caught fire yet but it's out that's there that's right it's been sort of a slow and steady climb and I know a lot of people went through in 2016 this really high 
high. And then in 2017, that's really low, low, thinking that all of their investments were a bust. And I think, you know, where people erred was simply the time horizon. 2016 saw the first three major consumer VR headsets in the Oculus Rift, which you just mentioned, the mm-hmm. HTC Vive and the PlayStation VR. And frankly, they sold millions of, of units in that year alone. And and it, it and that those sales uh, accelerated in 2017. So the way I viewed it is this has been a st- slow and steady climb. And of course, um, I would argue that the utilitarian content right. needs to be there before it really reaches the mainstream. Michael Ludden, thank you so much. Director of Product at IBM Watson Developer Labs, joining us on this Thursday on the phone in San Francisco, part of the Tribeca Film Festival, which kicked off last night. Cool talks that they're having as well. This is Bloomberg Radio. Here I go again, dialing your number, Blakey, how you just won't pick up the phone. All right, here we go again. Apple shares a little bit lower on some worries, down about 2.5% to 173.30 a share. Keep in mind, Apple shares still up about 2.5% for the year. Uh, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, they're the leading chip manufacturer for the smartphone industry, key indicator of demand, issued a growth forecast that rekindled concerns that the handset boom is waning, and that caught the attention of some analysts, including Abe Lamba, uh, analyst at Mizuho Securities, who put out a note on Apple today, joins us on the phone in New York. Also with us, Ramon Lamas, uh, Research Director of Mobile Devices and ARVR at IDC International Data Corporation, on the phone in Framingham, Massachusetts. Abe, I want to start with you. Tell us about your note. Are you, are you downgrading Apple or just saying, just putting out a little bit of a warning? Yeah, Carol. No, we downgraded Apple last year in June. Uh, at this point, we are just uh, warning, uh, uh, issuing a warning ahead of their earnings release. Uh, our Japan team is picking up uh, weakness not only in iPhone 10, which was very well understood, but also in iPhone 8 and 8 Plus. It seems like Apple is cutting orders there. And you mentioned about TSMC, uh, uh, TMC, uh, TSMC's guidance. So all the data points are pointing to weaker demand for iPhones, which is making us cautious, and that's the flag we're raising today. So haven't we seen this movie before? It seems that every year or every other year a new iPhone comes out and there are warnings about how well it's going to do and then we get a little early read into uh, suppliers and then lo and behold, they seem to shoot the lights out. Are, are, Are we jumping the gun here a little bit? Abe, you take that. Uh, Sure. Thanks, Carol. Uh, Yeah, Barry. So essentially, when we look at this, uh, uh, what's happening with Apple, uh, smartphones are no longer a growth market. At the the high end of the market, everyone who needs to have a smartphone probably has one. And as such, Apple is either fighting for share versus high-end Android devices, or it's attracting new customers, and new customers are uh, kind of slower to add in the mix. So essentially, it's become a replacement market. Right. And that's why any time we have a high optimism on new releases, we got to take it with a grain of salt. Ramon, come on in on this. Uh, over there at IDC, you know, you watch these markets. Um, do you have some concerns about Apple? Well, you know, if you take a look at where Apple's always been playing, it's always been in the high end of the market, uh, just like you said. And uh, year in and year out, they've always hovered anywhere between 15 to, say, 18% market share, uh, you know, year in and year out. Um, and that's been great, you know, in the years leading up to, say, you know, 2015, where we saw steady double-digit growth. Uh, but from here on out, from where I'm sitting, you know, we're only looking at, you know, middling or even perhaps lowish uh, single-digit growth from now on, anywhere between, say, 2 and, and 3.5 
half percent. Um, so if you take a look at that kind of growth rate and what uh, Apple has been uh, playing in terms of market share, um, you know, there really isn't uh, you know too much room to grow considering where Apple is today. That's really the high end. Um, that leads me to think, well, you know, where else can you go from here? Do you go from, uh, deeper into the middle? Do you go into the low end? And uh, quite frankly, these are areas that uh, Apple has only really dabbled in in the past, and that would really mark a, a terrific paradigm shift for the company. It's still a company that's expected to have about $261 billion in revenues this year. Which is which is just an astonishing number. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about some of their non-iPhone revenue. Uh, between iTunes and services and storage and the, uh, uh, the App Store, where else are we going to see growth outside of uh, phones? To, to either of you. Abe, why don't you start? Absolutely. You know, services is one area where uh, Tim Cook has highlighted that as an area of uh, focus for them. And uh, we could see them do some work over there. But uh, the problem in services is that in order to have a good services uh, franchise, you need a cross-platform support, as we saw with some of the other leading companies like Microsoft. And Apple does not have a good best-of-breed product uh, that goes cross-platform, and they don't want to go cross-platform. As such, uh, we think uh, sticking to their own install base, services is going to be maybe a 15 to 20% grower at about uh, 10 to 15% of their revenues. It just doesn't move the needle for the whole company. Ramon, I think, you know, so much of Apple's story is how much they can get the greater household, you know, and I think about Alexa with Amazon and so on and the inroads that they've made um, there. I'm an Apple household, uh, but I do have a Google home device, if you will. So where is Apple when it comes to kind of owning your home? Well, I think for that, Apple is still, you know, much closer to the starting line compared to the Amazons and the Google Assistants of the world. I mean, if you take a look at where Alexa's come from since 2015, 2016, and then Google early thereafter. Um, Apple has been notably silent until, you know, just this year when HomePod came out. Um, and we're still waiting to see what those first numbers are going to look like now. Unfortunately for us, you know, they're not going to probably uh, provide uh, numbers around volumes. And uh, the best we're going to do is just uh, triangulate from that other's revenue, which, by the way, is the home of where a lot of its smartwatch revenue has, has uh, been hiding for the past, uh, you know, couple of years. Mm. You know, so for me, if I take a look at that other's revenue, I think that's going to be a really interesting uh, thing to watch, you know, from here on out, because if you take a look at some of the other product lines, if you look at the iPod and the, uh, and, excuse me, the iPad right. and the Mac, you know, relatively flattish in, in some quarters down year over year, uh, but this other category has been, you know, steadily going, right. uh, you know, up and to the right. And so that's going to be some good news for Apple. A lot to watch for, but uh, shares definitely down today. Abe Lamba, analyst over at Mizuho Securities, on the phone in New York, on the phone in Framingham, Massachusetts, Ramon Lamas over at IDC. You are listening to Bloomberg Markets, and this This is Bloomberg Radio. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to the radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.